you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 294 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the recreational number theory episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that in recreational number theory, there is something called a unique period prime, which is a certain kind of prime number. Uh, that certain kind of prime number for our purposes is, of course... 294. And with that wonderful little bit of unique period prime number of recreational number theory knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. I don't like math. Me neither. Yeah. It sounds like. Do you talk about prime. Huh? I don't know. Didn't you talk about prime numbers before? Oh, yes. But, see, I had no idea that there was something called a unique period prime. Unique period prime. Yeah, see, you just think a prime number is like a number that is, like, not divisible by anything but itself or something like that. So are these But apparently, periods there are different kinds of prime numbers. Over time, over the different periods of time, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm kind of confused. Know. See, this is this is like like it's fascinating. Like this aspect of math, these or these different aspects of math that I talk about occasionally, fascinating are fascinating. But I have no fucking clue what they mean, and no, I don't want to learn anything more about them. God, I start but hearing about fascinating math and prime numbers, and I just start sweating. I'm in a pool of nervous sweat. Because I, I I feel like I might be tested on this. The day the day we decide to end this show, I, I'm expecting a, a test. Everything that I learned, like there's a higher being out there, out in the cosmos. Spoiler alert! It turns out it's an alien who's our favorite listener. Uh, we're gonna end the show. They're gonna abduct us, and they're gonna expect us to have had studied and become scholars of. The very things that you bring up during the opening of of the show, and uh, it feels like uh, when we get to the math and the prime numbers, I'm just gonna uh, freak out, start sweating, and that alien is gonna turn me into Campbell soup, and probably not Campbell soup, probably Progresso or Progressive soup. Is it Progresso or Progressive? I think Progresso, progresso is the name. Is the brand. soup. Okay. Yeah, Progresso is the soup. Progressive is the auto insurance. But Progressive, I'm pretty sure there is a store brand of soup called Progressive Soup. Progresso is the soup. But the store brand is Progressive. (laughs) If and you say so, sir. See, this is what, what happens with prime numbers. I'm farting out my brain right now. Well, that's okay. You're going to have plenty of time to fart out your brain when you're learning your stuff. Because you have news, Tim. You have to share your news with the world now. What what are you going to be doing other than leaving me high and dry for the month of September? Oh, I will not be on the show for the next month. I will be honing uh, honing my craft of... Porn. Porn, yeah. <laughs> I, I need to at least learn how to... I'm trying to learn how to masturbate about 18 times uh, in, a, in an hour successfully. Sure, sure. Yeah. Without giving myself rug burn or hand burn gotcha. or skin burn, whatever they call it. 
Friction burn. I'm actually going to be honing the art of game hunting. I'm going out shooting elephants and giraffes. My goal is within a month period of time, I'm going to go out and kill every large animal uh, in Africa. My goal before I am 31 is to make a species extinct. Wow. Wow. What a laudable goal. Laudable goal. And I'm sure that you're going to make a lot of friends doing this, too. I'll tell you what. (laughs) Our show would be so much more popular. Oh, yeah. We'd be right up there getting, what's his name, Alex Jones, right? We'd be getting the Alex Jones treatment. But at least people would know who we were. That is true. I don't know that that's That's necessarily good, uh, you know. Maybe we'd be Alex (sighs) Jones's go-to movie people, like on his show. Oof. See, even as a joke, I don't even know if I want to say that because that's all I'm seeing now is this Alex Jones character who apparently is a uh, conspiracy theorist guy or something. Yeah, he's a hoot. And... He has been taken off everything. Like YouTube kicked him out and Twitter's kicked him out and Facebook's kicked him out. And I think Instagram is getting rid of him. I mean, this guy can't do nothing to save his life, apparently. And, um, and, and it is, I mean, it's everybody's screaming, you know, you got one side screaming, yay, yay, more, more. And the other side screaming, ah, but my first amendment. And I, I, I don't think people understand how that works because we wh- what we do is very first depend- first amendment heavy but um first amendment do- doesn't protect you from a company and I don't think people understand that and that is why <laughs> I'm actually taking a month off to hone my craft of editing in pro tools so I'm going to be doing a lot of Pro Tool editing practice and and, and training and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, a lot Learning of training. All that. Yep, doing all that cool stuff for the old job. But hey, it might it might improve quality over on this end too. It, it might. It might. That, so I'm looking forward to that. So yeah, we've been toying with the name. I think it's. Uh, I, I like my personal vote is the SLS cast half assed, um, mainly because it rhymes and there's only half of us here. So the the goal right now is to have some different uh, some different co hosts to fill in for Tim. And Tim is still going to be sending us movie reviews, so we were we you will still be hearing his lovely voice, and uh, the banter sadly will be gone uh, for at least for the month of September. But we're we're going to have as much fun with it as we can. Tim's still going to be doing all of his movie reviews, and um, we'll have all the lovely graphics and everything that you've come to know and love. But uh, next week, we're going to have a very special discussions with uh, Matt and Tim, except we're going to replace the word Tim with Johnny. Uh, Not really, but Johnny's going to be here. Johnny White Trash, our good friend and host of the Johnny White Trash show. He's going to be filling in for him next week. And we're actually going to do something special and fun. We're going to have a... Our discussions is going to be the whole episode is a special discussions episode where we're going to introduce the last Batman Standing series that I've been doing with Johnny for the last year and a half, (laughs) almost two years, and we're going to do the next installment of that. So it'll be cross-platformed and it's, you know, all sorts of cool stuff's going to be happening. And then beyond that, Johnny uh, will hopefully be volunteering to help us a little bit, looking for other hosts as well currently, Um, and... 
Yeah, so it's going to be fun and exciting. Tim's going to be learning and doing and having and newing all sorts of cool stuff. And uh, it's all culminating, though, guys. It's all culminating because we're already planning for Halloween. So it's all culminate. There's a big culmination to all this wonderful stuff. So, yeah. This is true. We have cool. Satan, uh, who who may or may not be making guest appearances. That's true. Next month. It has... I guess I'm going to have to get my ass ready, apparently. That is true. Yes. We shall be working on that. Well, let's see. My fun and exciting news on my end is, you know, you know Job from Arrested Development? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know how sometimes he sits down and he says, I immediately regret this decision. Oh, sure. That is me right now with deciding to take this last semester of school. I am like, what the fuck have you done? What? Why? Why did you do this to yourself? I am so swamped. <laughs> it's upsetting, <laughs> but um, it's okay. Well, you know, we'll, we'll get through. We'll power through. I guess this is why you're not supposed to take four required courses for a major degree at the same time. I, I think this is why they tell you not to do that. The life of a lap dancer. Matt is learning the harsh way. Four crash right. courses and erotic dancing. The, the the life scholastic with Matt Quentin. Yeah, okay, so we don't actually have a, a news segment proper this week, but some shit went down, and so Tim has a couple things that we're going to just talk about real briefly before we get to our bonus segment, which is the copycat throwdown. Uh, unless, since we have two of the movies we're doing for our copycat throwdown, are movies we need to rate. Are we going to kind of switch it up and do movies first, then copycat throwdown? No, we could always just rate the movies within the copycat throwdown. Ooh, a, a double dose. I've never, it's a cross segment. Look at that. Yeah. We really are experimenting. We are. We'll find ourselves, Tim. We'll find ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do the micro news. Y'all sexy bitches. In our not news news segment, what do you got for us, sir? Via Deadline.com, Bond 25 hasn't moved off 2019 release date dot 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 yet. And this here is an article written by Mike Fleming Jr. And it was published on August 23rd. And it says this, speculation is high that Bond 25 has moved off its release date after Danny Boyle's exit. But sources tell Deadline it might be wishful thinking by rival distributors. The film hasn't abdicated its November 8th, 2019 release date. Not yet, at least. It is possible that if a replacement director is named within the next 60 days, Daniel Craig's last outing as 007 can keep its date, sources said. The decision rests with producers Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson, and they are keeping things close to the vest. Nobody is talking. But I've heard an approach was made to Jean-Marc Vallée, who followed Dallas Buyers Club with a limited series Big Little Lies and Sharp Objects. I've heard his participation is unlikely due to scheduling. Another name I'm hearing as a real possibility is Baby Driver's Edgar Wright, who has said he would love to do a James Bond film. The other two Helmers, who were on a short list are Heller Highwater's David McKenzie and Jan Damange, the 71 director who helmed White Boy Rick. So there are good filmmakers who are available if any of them accept. 
Chances are Bond 25 won't keep its date, I'm told. Some of that depends on whether the producers stick to the script John Hodge wrote from an idea by Boyle, or if they return to the script written by Neil Purvis and Robert Wade. Stay tuned. Matt, what do you think about this? The two directors that really stand out to me, Edgar Wright, of course, and David McKenzie, who directed Hell or High Water, between you and I, and the two other people listening to this right now, David McKenzie might be the better of the bunch because I think of Hell or High Water and what how, how that directing style can transition into a Bond film. We could get something very much like Casino Royale, you know, where it was more of a character movie than it was a classic James Bond outing like the last Bond movie was, which I'm having Spectre, Spectre which is how yeah. Spectre was. But what, what do you think? I agree that he has the ability to do good character work. I think he could do good scene work, but he would need an astounding uh, second unit. I mean, he he would need the the AD on that would have to be fucking ridiculous because. It would literally then be on to the assistant director or second unit director, full on second unit director, to do pretty much all the stunt work. And being able to maintain that tone with that much less creativity, which is, I think, where where Edgar Wright comes in, because he's done... I mean, he has done action-y stuff. I mean, you know, everything. We'll just go to the easy one, Hot Fuzz. I mean, there's just a ton of that in there. Um, even with Shaun of the Dead, what have you. I don't know. Can, can we just have the dream team? Can we have super directors and just put them together? And then, you know. <laughs> All of them. Have one do the action. Have one do the characters. And then let's see how it goes. Yeah, my only thing with Edgar Wright. And again, it's because I've never seen him direct anything quite like this. Because usually all of his films have a distinct, very distinct tone. And all the action set pieces that he directs, he cheats a lot. Like with Hot Fuzz, the camera, the, there's a lot of uh, edits and cuts and the camera moves around a, a whole bunch. Uh, with Baby Driver, there is stunt driving and there is action, but it's kind of honed down. You know, it, it's not a spectacle and so that's my only thing about Edgar Wright directing it. It's just, and really that stems from me not seeing him directing such a large scale picture like, or I guess what I assume the next James Bond movie and every other James Bond movie is like. I, I absolutely agree. I mean, really and truly, I, I it's like I kind of want to mold him into one, <laughs> into one director because I think that they do have their individual strengths and weaknesses. And yes, I do agree with you that Wright has his own particular style. But even if you think about a lot, going back to just Casino Royale, right? Looking at the opening to that, there's a lot of sweeping, there's a lot of sweeping shots. There's a lot of cuts and cross angles, especially on the, uh, on the crane. So I could see, I could see Wright's style being okay with that. I think if that's the only thing he did, then yes, I, I that would wear thin quickly. And I just don't know if anyone else could 
pull it off. But it'll be interesting to find out what happens, sure. especially since Danny Boyle exited. I would love to know what the creative differences were. Air quotes, creative differences. <laughs> so. All right, and another piece of news here from IGN.com. Dwayne Johnson's Big Trouble in Little China movie won't be a remake. This is written by Alex Gilyadov. Gilyadov. G-I-L-Y-A-D-O-V. Apologies there. And it was published on August 27th. And it says this. The new Big Trouble in Little China movie starring Dwayne Johnson won't be a remake, but rather a continuation of the original story. Speaking to Collider, producer Hiram Garcia revealed the new film will see Johnson portraying a new character rather than playing Kurt Russell's Jack Burton from the 1986 original. Saying, quote, you can't remake a classic like that. So what we're planning to do is we're going to continue the story. We're going to continue the universe of big trouble in little China. Everything that happened in the original exists and is standalone. And I think there's only one person that could ever play Jack Burton. So Dwayne would never try and play the character, end quote. Garcia did not share any further details regarding how exactly the new film will be a continuation and if it'll be a direct sequel, but the project could take the same approach as Johnson's Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle, which also wasn't a straight remake of the original Jumanji movie. End all quotes there. Again, IGN.com, the new Big Trouble in Little China won't be a remake. Matt, what do you think about this? Rejoice? It's great news. I am so happy to hear that because it does a couple of different things. It frees them up to actually tell their own story and let it be as original as it needs to be in terms of people who aren't, who may or may not, for whatever reason, be familiar with Big Trouble in Little China. At the same time, it allows them to keep certain key uh, universe elements in place so that they can either reuse those as needed to kind of anchor the story that they're in. And as an added bonus, and the truest bonus is, now you can also bring in Kurt Russell could come back, Kim Cattrall could come back, right? So you can put in different people and have cameos and stuff like that as well. So I am, I think it's great because it, it just gives them so much more freedom than a straight reboot would. And I'm all for it. Also with that, if The Rock doesn't play Jack Burton, then what's the point of doing a Big Trouble in Little China if it's not with Jack Burton? Why don't you just go ahead and just do another movie outside of Big... Are Are you telling me that in 2018, with everything that we have going on in the world, (laughs) There's not someone who could out Jack Burton, Jack Burton. That that could literally be the point of the character arc for Dwayne Johnson. This guy literally went to the school of Jack Burton and is just flat out trying to outdo Jack Burton. I I don't know. I think it's I think there's so much they can do with that now. And as a matter they could even make him so over the top trying to outdo Jack Burton that people constantly reference him, you know, and and now Dwayne Johnson's character is struggling for his own identity because everybody thinks he's trying to be Jack Burton and he's not. Again, there's so much you can play with in in this realm. Now, 
Again, just like the old, the eternal caveat, well, they got to do it right. But there's just so much more room to play with it and and have a lot of fun with it. I mean, could you imagine here's Dwayne Johnson pretending to be this Jack Burton-esque character, da 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 and all they need, all they need is just some random fucking truck driver to drive by, get on that radio and start shutting him down, and it's fucking the real Jack Burton. It's Kurt Russell. You know, and all he has to do is just fucking drive by. You know, it would be perfect. I mean, Christine Brinkley a la vacation and you've still got you've still got it set. I'm glad you're looking forward to it. <laughs> I I don't know. I I'm definitely on the fence. Originally it was going to be a remake or they they were alluding to it being a complete remake and now they're backpedaling a bit quite a bit. I don't know if it was as a result of what John Carpenter said a year or so ago when he had some funny comments regarding this. I don't know. I will just have to see. I wasn't completely sold on Jumanji until I saw the trailer. Lastly, again, via Deadline Hollywood, Neil Simon at the movies, why this comedic genius deserved more respect from Hollywood and appreciation, written by Pete Hammond, and this was published on August 26th. And it says this, It is ironic that Neil Simon, who died today at 91, got his inspiration to become a comedy writer from the movies, into which he constantly escaped to forget the circumstances of his poor Depression-era childhood. Even though he grew up in Washington Heights, much closer to Broadway than Hollywood, it was always the movies of the likes of Chaplin, Keaton, and others that stuck with him and led to one of the most sterling careers ever for a writer. Yet by far, his greatest success and appreciation came as one of the most powerful playwrights of all time, a record of accomplishment that included a whopping 17 Tony nominations and three wins, a Pulitzer Prize for drama, and even as the rare playwright to have a theater named after him. Quote, I always feel more like a writer than I'm writing a play because of the tradition of the theater. There is no tradition of the screenwriter unless he is also the director, which makes him an auteur, so I really feel that I'm writing for posterity with plays, which have been around since the Greek times, end quote, he once said about his career trajectory. This probably explains why in his prime his works were often staples in the Tony Best Play category, but in movies he never got nearly that kind of recognition, despite over 25 screenplays, most based on his own plays that brought the Neil Simon magic to the masses. Yet he never won an Oscar, or even an honorary Oscar, which he so deserved. And overall, he received just four Oscar nominations for writing, including for three play adaptations, California Suite, The Odd Couple, and The Sunshine Boys, and one original for The Goodbye Girl, which, perhaps because it was written for the screen, received his greatest acclaim from Hollywood, by being the only Simon title ever to be nominated for Best Picture. Ironically, it lost the 1977 Best Picture Oscar to another comedy, Woody Allen's Annie Hall. 
Oscar voters appear to be in the rare mood to laugh that year, but comedy, right from the beginning, has most often been easily overlooked at the Academy Awards, if not at the box office, where just this weekend a comedy Crazy Rich Asians continues to be making a killing. The new popular movie Oscar might have been the ticket for Simon, but it's coming too late for him. In its first year, 1927 to 1928, the Academy invented a comedy directing category, where Charlie Chaplin was nominated and lost, but abandoned it the next year, never to return to the idea of a separate category for the art and science of comedy again in the 90 years since then. Simon was always at a disadvantage when it came to Oscars, but he shouldn't have been. Comedy is hard. He made it look easy. Sadly, the only Oscar we associate with Neil Simon is the one who lived with Felix. The article does go on for quite a bit more. I highly encourage all of you to check it out. Again, that was via Deadline Hollywood, Deadline.com, Neil Simon at the movies, why this comedic genius deserved more respect from Hollywood and appreciation, written by Pete Hammond. I have uh, always maintained that I like those kinds of movies. But uh, because as I've mentioned a million, a million times before, Murder by Death, Neil Simon play, Neil Simon movie. Great stuff. Uh, Brighton Beach Memoirs, Biloxi Blues. It's not like Neil Simon is no stranger to the screen. And all of those were plays, odd couple play. So he was definitely someone that was able to get into the American consciousness in, in such a way that not only did he bridge the stage to the people, he literally took the people from the stage to the screen and showed just exactly how good storytelling will always be possible in any medium when you have a good story to tell. Um, and then, uh, and he will... He will be missed. And that's my news. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think we're going to do our special combo package this evening of movie copycat throwdown action, correct? Yeah, this is like the buy six for the price of one from the Walmart bargain bin. That's right. Which, ironically, you can probably find at least two of these movies in that bargain bin in about five months. It's it's the the copy copy cat cat throwdown throwdown. That's right. It's the copy cat throwdown. Well, that's right. It's the copy cat throwdown. Stop it! Stop it! No, no. Seriously, stop it. Oh, right. Like, stop repeating. Stop repeating. Right. Oh, okay. I'm gonna kick your ass. Okay, and so our weird combo package of movies, copycat throwdown, uh, we're going to be doing uh, the movies specifically are 2018's Papillon and The Happy Time Murders. The the copycat throwdown is Happy Time Murders versus Meet the Feebles and Papillon versus uh, 1973's Papillon versus 2018's Papillon. We're in uncharted waters, Tim. How do you want to do this? How about we save the better group of movies uh, last and start off with Happy Time Murders and Feebles? Okay. Unless Meet the Feebles is your favorite film. Oh my gosh. The tears that flowed after watching that movie. Um, The joy that I experienced when that film was over. 
because it was over. Yeah, we can save that for... We, we can do that first. Let's just get it out of the way. Happy time murders, y'all. I love singing and dancing. Hiya, folks. For 50 cents, I'll suck your dick. <laughs> well, it's a great price. It almost makes me wish I had a dick for you to suck. Or take that as a yes. <laughs> you two are the most decorated offices in this department. What do you see? Looks like a robbery gone wrong to me. This wasn't a robbery. This was a hit. Welcome. Someone out there <gasps> is killing puppets. Hey, handsome. You looking for some rotten cotton? I'm a woman. That's okay. Yeah, that's even better. Got a good time for you. <laughs> We're gonna catch the bastards who did these murders. Because bodies are gonna start piling up. You're one of the best damn cops I've ever seen. I'll have your badge for this. I'm in the fucking FBI. Oh, yeah? What's that stand for? Fucking big idiot? <laughs> Shit gets crazy, I'm gonna go crazy as shit. God, are you all right? I ruptured my hymen. This pure ecstasy. I'm not doing this. Do it. Oh, sorry about your dead human friend, Phillips. That is good shit. <laughs> well, fuck me. Maybe. <laughs> is Phil in? He's servicing a client. Is that what I think it is? Here I go. Here I go. Here I go. Here I go. American black comedy crime film. Uh, this is directed by Brian Henson, written by Todd Berger. Movie stars uh, Melissa McCarthy, Maya Rudolph, Joel McHale as Elizabeth Banks, and Bill Beretta as Phil Phillips. Now, this is basically following. Uh, we imagine <laughs> in a world where puppets and humans coexist. A joint police force must solve a recent murder spree of retired sitcom puppet stars. Um, so, okay, this movie pretty much comes down to one thing, and one thing only. It's whether or not you like the idea of foul-mouthed Melissa McCarthy, a la The Heat. If you like that style of script, if you like that style of language, and if you like that style of comedy, you are going to enjoy this movie. If you don't, then you will not. Though I suspect that you will still be able to acknowledge the novelty aspect of adult humor regarding puppets. The movie itself is basically in it does exist in a world where you have humans and puppets coexisting and as they start off right at the bat everybody gets along all the humans get along because they just pick on the puppets. And you know it's it's dark humor it's black comedy but at the same time subtle social commentary is involved. 
but it's never done at the expense of preaching. It's done so that they can get away with a lot of the jokes they that they purport to have in the movie. Now, I went and saw this on Saturday night. I actually did a double feature. I watched Happy Time Murders and then literally got out of that theater and walked right into Papillon. And the movie, what the Happy Time Murders was, I would say, 50, 60% full. So, and it was a pretty good, it was a pretty good crowd laughing at, uh, at all the right parts and kind of generally enjoying the movie on the whole. For me, all you have here is a very thin, predictable, basically worn out, hard boiled gumshoe plot or film wrapped in a veneer of. Uh, 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 of sex jokes and and adult humor that is juxtaposed with the puppets most of the time so i'll give it the preponderance so we'll say about 60 percent of the time the jokes at least land i won't say that they always work but they land and you get a chuckle, you get some fun. They definitely dispel any kind of rumors that this is going to take a while to to help you understand what it's like to be in a to, to be in an adult puppet movie. Within the first five and a half minutes, you get to see um, <laughs> puppet tentacle porn. So it, they they definitely put you in the frame of it right away. Yet. Though they land, it's not always super funny. But it is funny enough. And when they don't land, it's usually because they're trying too hard to integrate the puppet humor into the human side of things. This is chiefly demonstrated in a scene where Melissa McCarthy, it comes out that she's got a puppet liver. And so for puppets, their illicit drug is glucose it's it's sugar and so she has got a twizzler and she's snorting grape or purple color sugar crystals and drinking maple syrup um a lot of that stuff like it's moderately funny at first but it's immediately overplayed and and then it kind of falls into the that's you know 60% category when they do subtle references to it later on on the flip side of that though again you just have that hard hard in your face vernacular that Melissa McCarthy uses when she is doing her R-rated shtick and for me more often than not that aspect of it was funny so at the end of the day I give this one a three and a half out of five. It is pretty funny, and it's unique in the in the regards of putting this particular spin on the tired, hard boiled gumshoe mystery. But even when the jokes land, which is more often than not, they're not like super great. Very few times was I like really laughing, but. I was smiling most of the time and definitely enjoyed it more than I didn't. So three and a half out of five. What do you got there, Tim? 
I really wanted this movie to work. I've been looking forward to it for five years or so. When we first started the podcast, we were talking about in one of our first few episodes, Brian Henson has been working on this script, wrote the script, been developing this idea for probably like a decade and a half. I kind of got the idea that maybe he wrote the script early on and didn't really change a whole lot of it story-wise. And we've seen this type of movie done so much better story-wise multiple times. Unfortunately, if this was geared towards kids, maybe it would work in some way. Obviously, minus the hookers, minus the sex, minus maybe the murderers. This noir character would have been great in one of the Henson kids movies if he was like a side character. But as a main character, the story needs more umph, especially when they take the more dramatic approach. Because there is definitely a shift. Granted, they actually handle this shift pretty well, where you go from ridiculous comedy and then, alright, it's a little bit serious. And it's a little awkward at first, but when they get into that seriousness, it works. And it seems like, I mean, there has to be a better cut of this movie where they were maybe putting it together and they realize it's not flowing well at all. You know, we, we have this outrageous comedy and then we have this serious tone, which isn't like super serious, but it's pretty serious. And maybe that didn't work out. I just don't know. But the satire was way too subtle and there was nothing that really pushed the movie over the edge. Some of the jokes, some of the dialogue, and the ideas were funny, but never consistent, like what Matt was saying. And it also felt like there was just not really any consistent nuance throughout the script. I'd give it a two. I chuckled a handful of times. I thought the tentacle porn thing was really funny, just how they handled it. I, I got a kick out of that, and uh, I think it was like the rabbit and the carrot dildo. A lot of that stuff is just really funny, just not consistent. And it also says something when during the credits they show the bloopers, the outtakes, and you're seeing the guys wearing the green screen outfits, working the puppets, watching their expressions and hearing their reactions to some of the dialogue that was obviously improvised. I just had a huge smile plastered on my face because it looked like these guys were having the time of their freaking life putting this movie together. And it's just an absolute shame that it didn't really transfer over into the film. This has just fallen into the pit of a project that was just overdeveloped. We've seen this before with other long-in-the-works movies. In my book, it's just a shame. Better luck next time. Two out of five for me. Okay, and you know what? I'm sitting here thinking about it, and you are correct. I'm back in mine down to a three. I I can honestly say I enjoyed myself, but I'm sitting here trying to think, why three and a half? Why three and a half? And I'm and I'm and it's because it's unique. It's because it's unique that I'm that I wanted to give it that, but it, but it's not good enough for that. It's it's like we said, it's it's funny in little spurts. You can you can take it for what it is or not, and you like it or not, and that's fine. But I can't truly justify a three and a half. So. Three, final decision. Yeah, I mean, it's a polished, well-made movie. It's just a little too polished. I just recently rewatched The Dark Crystal, and it felt like I was definitely not watching a Jim Henson movie, 
But I was watching a movie on the caliber of something like Star Wars or Indiana Jones where the story is interesting, the visuals are interesting. It's incredible how well made it is. And when watching the Happy Time Murders, I just kept thinking, God, the, the cinematography, the look, everything is just like lit like a comedy. Everything is just well lit. If this was like a murder mystery noir, why didn't they play around with the shadows and the lighting, make it more moody? I think that would have been better, especially if they were wanting to take these little dramatic detours. That would have been a better avenue to take with some you know, visual substance to it. All right. So we're going to now, so we're comparing that against 1989's Meet the Feebles. So, you want to join the Feebles? Oh, rather. <laughs> Meet the Feebles! Meet the Feebles! Meet the Feebles. The movie that began as family entertainment, but went horribly wrong. Have you got any smack? Smack? tried to stop. Oh, what beautiful white fur. God, my dear. <laughs> the story that rocked the puppet world. This is a family show, for Christ's sake. Sex. I'm hot, Bletch, but not the way you think. Drugs. Animal husbandry. Why did you bring it here? It's not mine. You know it's not. We'll let the court decide that, shall we? In the garden, garden of love. Meet the Feebles turns the cabbage patch into the killing fields. It's fun. It's thrilling. It's contagious. It's the big one, Harry. No, it can't be. I've taken precautions. Corruption. Barry, do me a line. Lust. Feeling shy. Are you blessed? Light romance. From the director of Bad Taste. Did you realize you were sitting on its face? Well, I felt a bit uncomfortable, but I thought it was my hemorrhoid. Please, God. I know I've been a <coughs> bad bunny, but if you Nothing make me well again, I'm is sacred. Meet the Feebles is about to be released on you. Have you ever noticed the beautiful lighting in this toilet? 1989, New Zealand musical black comedy film. This one's directed by Peter Jackson and written by Jackson along with a team of other writers, uh, Fran Walsh, Stephen Sinclair, and Danny uh, Mulheran. This is meant to be uh, Jim Henson-esque, but nowhere does Henson or any of the Henson company, nothing is involved with this. Again, Brian Henson is Jim Henson's son, and he was the director of... Happy Time Murders. So, to give you an idea. Now, this movie... Okay. Basically, this movie is following a... The the behind-the-scenes 
foibles, if you will, of a group of people all behind a play, a musical, that is trying to be, I guess, kind of like a variety show, if you will, or a cabaret-style show that is trying to transition to television. And it's all these different... It's from the point of view of all these different people. Um, I don't know that we necessarily needed a, 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 a rat based on Peter Lorre, but a, a, a pornographic sleazeball rat based on Peter Lorre. But you're going to get a pornographic sleazeball rat based on Peter Lorre in this movie. It, it's told from the shifting viewpoints of all these different characters and so it's not necessarily really about any one of them it's about the group of them as the whole so you've got heidi who's a hippopotamus trevor is the rat that i was referring to bletch is a walrus um you've got a hedgehog named robert who for whatever reason it always sounds like they're saying wobbert with the with the W, I never really noticed a hard R on Robert, like ever. Be- okay. Because he says Wobbert, so I think everybody's just kind of making fun of him. Oh, okay. I guess that was a, a joke. See, I didn't. I, I missed the joke. <laughs> there, you know, it's New Zealand humor. Just to throw that circa out there. Circa 1989. Circa, and circa look, 1989. I get, exactly. I get that this was a very low budget film. This is very, very early Peter Jackson. I, I appreciate everything that they were trying to do in terms of production and the production values themselves, given all the struggles they were having and everything like that. So I'm not judging the movie on that. I am literally judging this on direction pacing and editing okay on its own they most of these i could see this being episodic which originally this was supposed to be episodic but then they had some investors who came in and said look we think this is great we need to expand it and then it ultimately became this movie um now i i get that aspect of it but instead of this is one of those times when you just say no and you stick to your guns and say, look, I'm glad you like this and I'm glad you would want to turn this into a movie, but this needs to be smaller because everything comes in as its own vignette. And because of that, it's nothing is paced very well. Um, Tim and I were giving a hard, uh, each other a hard time on Twitter earlier this evening. We're recording this on the 27th. And because Tim had record, uh, put on Twitter over the weekend, he's like, wow, this movie actually gets better after the 20-minute mark. And here I am, 35 minutes in, and I want to shoot myself. Um, and, and I'm just waiting. I'm literally waiting for this movie to get better. And it's not getting better. And it drags. Like this open, the, like the opening number, it, it just doesn't work to set the tone of the movie. It's just kind of like... Well, here's a musical number. Doesn't really need to have anything to do with anything. You should just have singing puppets because we're going to make fun of puppets and what they do and make them adult. Um, and, and then it just kind of bleeds into something else. It's kind of like these late 80s sensibilities that just weren't executed as well as they can. It's like the seeds are there. And maybe if it had just been on its own, like they... They did. The, they do this opening number, and then kind of back it out 
I don't know, a la Singing in the Rain or even the end of Blazing Saddles for crying out loud. So that you can just kind of get the superciliousness of it. Okay. But they don't do that. They just kind of immediately feed into this dark, you know, black, you know, blackish comedy kind of thing that doesn't ever seem to land. And then it's just the same thing. And then eventually they shift to another gear and it's just kind of bland. And then they just sit outside of a movie, or sit outside of a theater advertising the uh, Meet the Feebles with cars driving by for 13 seconds because I timed it for no reason. Let's just set a camera outside and watch cars drive by a theater for 13 seconds. Okay. It's stuff like that. Just all these things shoehorned in to try and pad it out to make it a movie and nothing that ever puts it all together. The the puppets themselves are really good. They're really, really good, especially knowing the budget constraints that they had. Um, the shot selection in and of itself is also not bad. Uh, and, and uh, for example, they ran out of money. Now, you don't know this watching the movie, but even considering not knowing this going in to watch the movie, the Vietnam flashback... They funded that shit out of their own pockets. Like, the crew got together and passed a hat, and that was how they paid to make that scene. It's, it's well done there. It's a lot of things that are technically, for what they're trying to do, good. It's just not well-directed. It is not paced well. And the shots, as good as they are, don't work well together. And so... I just did not like this movie. If I was going to officially rate this movie, which I guess technically I am now, but whatever. I mean, um, I, I would literally, this would be a 1.5 for me. I can't say I hated it, but God, I wanted this thing to be over. Um, so consequently, Happy Time Murders is clearly twice as good because <laughs> I gave it a three. Um, so for me, the winner is Happy Time Murders, hands down. But I can respect what Jackson was trying to do with Meet the Feebles. It's just, it just not, he just, he just didn't get it done. He just did not get it done. So, Tim, where are you at on this, sir? You do get great morsels. The line from Trevor, I've heard better singing from a mongoose with throat cancer. If that says anything, this movie is quite surprising. And I think that's what made, made it fun for me to watch. I, of course, enjoyed it. I didn't love it. In fact, I think before that 20-minute mark, uh, I was just getting over it. But I stuck with it. I was watching it. I had a couple drinks in me, and I started picking up on a few things that just stuck with me throughout. And I thought story-wise, visually, character-wise, it all paid off by the end. Peter Jackson began his career making the kind of flicks that he enjoyed going to the theater to see, which were these ultra-low-budget comic genre pictures. And these early flicks of his were very shocking to watch, but never really disturbing. They're definitely gross, especially when you get to his zombie movie, but it's not necessarily disturbing. Jackson reaches for the extreme and the ridiculous shocks, the things that are so out there, it'll make people laugh. 
Meet the Feebles is the second film in Jackson's trash trilogy coming after 1987's slapstick splatter comedy Bad Taste, and before the 1992 zombie comedy Braindead, which in the US was released as Dead Alive. Meet the Feebles not only stands as the first film of Jackson's to gain notoriety, but it marks his first collaboration with writer and producer Fran Walsh and the special effects team of Richard Taylor and Tania Roger, who go on to win Oscars for their work in all three of the Lord of the Rings films, as well as King Kong. At first glance, most would say that Feebles is a blatant Muppets knockoff, but Jackson had stated that it's actually satirizing human behavior, specifically human behavior behind the scenes of an all-too-family-friendly children's show, and the human behavior within show business. The characters in Meet the Feebles include Bletch, a walrus, and the boss of the Feebles Entertainment Group, who's also involved with drug running and producing pornography, Bletch, along with Trevor, a porno director and drug-pushing rat, supplies heroin to members of the Feebles cast, including Weinerd, a frog and knife thrower, suffering from Vietnam flashbacks. There's also Harry, a sex-addicted bunny who becomes riddled with STDs, and the Feebles show director, a very rude and sarcastic and dismissive fox named Sebastian, who exits the film with a show-stopping musical number called The Sodomy Song. Sodomy, you may think it really odd of me, but I enjoy the act of sodomy. You may call the wrath of God on me, but if you tried it, then you might agree that you enjoy the act of sodomy. So yes, you have Sebastian, the fox, uh, the bitchy director who closes the movie with the sodomy song. Meet the Feebles is a very interesting movie. I've heard about it for years and finally got around to watching it this past week in preparation for the Happy Time Murders. What I like about this film is that it's unique and Happy Time Murders is not all that unique. We've seen it before. I mean, we've seen Sausage Party, CGI, what we consider to be a kid's movie, is actually a hard-R adult film. But with Meet the Feebles, it was made in the late 80s, small budget. Peter Jackson's early visual style is on display. It takes a good 20 minutes or so (laughs) to really notice any of it, but hints of his visual style is definitely on display. You have some really cool... Uh, Not only camera movements and camera placements, which Matt mentioned earlier, but you also have the staging of a scene. For example, when Bletch, the walrus, is trying to find his drugs and him and the rat travel to the docks and there's this little battle on the docks, you know, while they're trying to get their drugs and they're trying to leave. But then this giant fish creature breaches from the water and in their limousine, they drive into that fish creature's mouth. The camera cuts into the belly of the creature and you see this car driving through inside of the monster's belly, but it's really not that gross. And then it just launches out of its ass. How all of that is not only structured, but visualized is 
inventive in its own way. I mean, if you just look at that scene stagnant, isolated from the rest of the film, you might find it visually interesting. But then when you piece it back into the film itself, or when you look at it in the overall film, you start picking up on other Peter Jackson things, like the swooping cameras that he does, the crazy close-ups, and just all those things we think of with especially the Frighteners. You can see all that uh, with this film. That's what makes this movie unique and much more enjoyable than the Happy Time Murders. Do all the jokes land, and are they all funny? More so... Then in the Happy Time Murders, they work in Meet the Feebles. The dialogue, a lot of the one-liners are significantly funnier. I think some of the character interactions are significantly funnier. But Happy Time Murders is the more polished film. It is the most professional-looking film. But also, that unprofessionalness and the immaturity of Meet the Feebles makes it that much more fascinating i shall dare to say because i i think that stuff is pretty fascinating it, i mean it has a very distinct feel uh, just on the verge of being grimy and unsettling i mean some ridiculous things happen in the film but there's nothing that's gonna keep you from going to bed at night i mean a lot of people look at meet the feebles and they give it way too much credit which Jackson doesn't even want. He was just, again, wanting to set out to make a movie that's just going to make people laugh because it's just so fucking ridiculous. It works for some people. It doesn't work for others. It worked for me. And that is why I deem Meet the Feebles the better of the two films. All right, all right. There you have it, sir. My vote, Happy Time Murders. Tim's vote, Meet the Feebles. So, moving on, we are now going back in time, if you will, biographically speaking, to cover Papillon. I love you. Say that again. You're under arrest for the murder of Roland Legrand. Got the wrong guy, pal. I was with her all night. Come on, let's go. This is a frame-up. Papillon, right? Got any money? Get some. Never escape without it. Louis Degas. Guy's a millionaire. Won't last long. You got a lot of eyes on you, my friend. For a little bit of that money you're carrying, I could keep you safe. Keep me alive. I'll underwrite any escape you care to arrange. Something tells me you can be quite savage. You are the property of the penal administration of French Guiana. There's no way off. There's always a way. I know many of you are thinking about escape. This is your best chance. Feel free to try whenever you like. I mean to come with you. There are two guardians who are always on duty. Bush, but the best thing that can happen to you is starvation. Or you could choose to see. What you good for? It's my friend. Where the sharks were always hungry. If you manage to survive your first attempt, you'll get two years in solitary. Second attempt, you'll get a life sentence at Devil's Island. Strange things happen there. Especially to those who bring to hope. Come on! 
2017 biographical drama film directed by Michael Noer. This one tells the story, well, they both tell the story, <laughs> of French convict uh, Henri Charrier, uh, played by Charlie Hunnam in this one, nicknamed Papillon, who was imprisoned in 1933 and escaped in 1941 with the help of another convict, counterfeiter Louis Degas, uh, played by Rami Malek. So... Um, All right, so basically what we have here, and because this is based on the memoirs um, of uh, Chérier, and uh, it's Papillon and Banco are the two um, biographies, if you, autobiographies. There there are, the, the accepted calculus when dealing with Papillon and Banco is that Maybe most of this or some of this happened to Chatier personally, but the vast majority of stuff is pulled from his experiences dealing with other people who told them what they went through at these prisons in French Guyana. That being said, the general narrative is that uh, and, uh, Henri or Henri uh, Papillon Chatier. As uh, a safecracker in Paris, who is framed for murder, for the framed for the murder of a pimp, and is sent to French Guyana to miserable prison conditions, and attempts repeatedly to escape, and obviously ultimately is because how would you get the true story if you didn't know that he got away? Um, this movie. I found to be really quite well done overall. Now, this movie, I guess you could say, takes a risk because no one speaks French and no one has a French accent. And it's one of those things that you can look at it and go, well, are they just co-opting someone else's culture in this right and and i would say no that's not the case here because i think you're doing more of a disservice if you try and come up with all these people who have these uh, these french accents that are put on or affected and they don't work or they're just miserable and worse people speaking french when they don't know how to do it in the original movie followed the same path as well this is true and so and and i liked that aspect of it but at the same time Given the level of cinema, I I did notice it, and I did kind of miss the idea that they could have gone with French actors and actresses and just really done it right. Um, your mileage may vary on this one, but just know that this is not about co-opting another another culture. It's about simply trying to genuinely get this across to an audience who might not otherwise understand or appreciate it. Um, that being said, so so you know you're gonna have, so so that one take as much as take, take with as much of a grain of salt as you like. For me, where I thought this movie really stands out is in the way that it actually shows the bonds between uh, Papillon and Dega. They they go from just a mutually beneficial business partnership to truly only being able to rely on one another. 
It's and and it's just the mere idea of knowing that they're out there that enables them to exist together and suffer through times that they are separated and alone. Um the movie is also vastly vastly well paced especially compared against the 1973 film now it does tend to drag a little bit in a couple of the same areas as 1973s especially in the solitary the initial solitary confinement scene but even then it's not it's bad it's it's like they knew it's like they knew no nowhere knew he sits there and he goes all right, if we go any longer than this, people are going to fall asleep or people are going to get lost. I think that because of that, they did well. I wasn't really pleased with some of the tropes that they used to demonstrate where Papillon, uh, how he gets framed for the murder and ends up. It just kind of was a little bit unnecessary, I think, especially given the idea behind it. This was something that just could have been simply uh, used as exposition upon his arrival. And things that could have been alluded to, especially things that could have been alluded to in more of a dream state, which they do anyway in the solitary confinement parts of the film. But I think it would have been better serve to just simply let it go because then you fully understand that he's just imagining a life and you can decide from an audience perspective whether or not he's a reliable narrator. So the movie kind of struggles in that in that regard. The only other thing that I felt that the movie struggled with uh, was that Charlie Hunnam does a really good job of portraying the never give up, never surrender, right? Uh, attitude that Papillon needs in order to survive. But he, he has a scene. He has a scene, a minor spoiler alert. There's a scene in the solitary confinement, in one of the solitary confinement things where he's being offered some soup. He's been on half rations for a while. He's being offered some soup. The soup actually has meat in it. And the warden's just like, just give me a name. And he does this he, he does this thing where he literally only communicates with his face. And he says everything he needs to say with just the look on his face. And I'm like, wow, that is powerful. And then he goes and he takes a spoonful of the soup and he just kind of pours it on the face of the warden. And I'm sitting there like... Now he just kind of looks like like he's trying to be a cocky badass or something. Like, ha, you haven't broken me. The look that he gives the warden already achieves this. And so there are little, little tiny aspects of the way that Hunnam plays the character. I don't know if this was Hunnam's decision on his own, if this was worked at through the scripts or some combination with, with Noah and Hunnam or whatever. But it's little slices like that that instead of just kind of putting it over the top, it topples everything over. And it and it takes away from an otherwise powerful scene. And that happens a couple of times in the film. But 
all in all, this movie is really, really good, and I do recommend it. I think it's great, especially if you've seen the 73 version. I um, I would really encourage you to watch the 2017 version because I think it's a stronger film overall. Um, and if you haven't seen the 73 version, um, then jump right in with 2017. I think it's fantastic. Uh, I give this one 4.25 out of 5. Uh, Tim, what do you got, sir? I was, I mean, I, I guess you could say I was blown away by this movie because like you and others, I read the reviews and the reviews weren't that great. I think on Rotten Tomatoes, it currently has like a 40 or 50 something. And the original has a 80%. It has a, a very good rating. Uh, but the audience score, I believe for the new one is relatively high or at least higher than the critic score and so i went into this movie expecting good performances just i I didn't know what to expect for the story i didn't know if it was going to be slow i didn't know if it was going to be artsy i just had no i didn't know what to expect so i went to the theater not once did i check my watch i was entertained i had a good time it was just a good movie i was excited when I was supposed to be excited. I was thrilled when I was supposed to be thrilled. I felt bad for the characters when I was supposed to feel bad. Uh, Was I depressed? Was I sad? Was I crying for them? No. But I wanted to see Papillon succeed. And did I know already he was going to succeed? Well, yeah, I've seen the original movie. But what both, uh, is it Remy Malek? Rami. Rami. Rami Malek. What he brought to the table blew me out of the water. I thought he had a very interesting characterization, different than Dustin Hoffman. However, Charlie Hunnam, I don't think he pulled the character off as well as Steve McQueen. Papillon, though, the 2018 version is a better personal story. I think the unneeded opening with him, showing him as the thief and showing him with the girl he loves... What that does well is that it sets up his character, so then later on when he does have the flashbacks, including his newish friend, it all makes sense in its own way, and therefore it's a little more effective. However, I don't think Charlie Hunnam is a super strong actor, and it really takes somebody who can both master speaking and non-speaking dramatic performance. You have to be able to see and feel what this character is going through, through their face, through their body language, but also the way that they talk and they communicate and and how they react to things. Now, is it awful? Not at all. I think Charlie Hunnam does a good job, especially when the movie is getting closer to the finale and he has to lose even more weight. And, you know, when he goes back into the can, he does that spot on, you know, he, he brings you there. He brings the audience into what he's having to go through. But then I went back and watched the 73 version and saw what Steve McQueen brought to the table. Granted, Steve McQueen was a macho guy, but at that time he was acting. He wasn't trying to be that macho character. And he was both personable, funny, sad it really got to me his performance and that's what was missing from charlie hunnam it's like when you watch just like a good tv show and you see somebody's like you know what they did exactly what they were supposed to do but they didn't grab me by the balls and that's what i really 
I don't want Charlie Hunnam to actually grab me by the balls, but I want him to grab me by the balls as in the emotion that great movies should do to their audience. But again, I thought Papillon 2018 had the better personal story. It was a beautiful film, four out of five. So now that we've officially given scores, 1973's Papillon. After five years as an international bestseller, it comes to the screen. Unquestionably, the greatest adventure of escape ever filmed. Steve McQueen, Dustin Hoffman, Papillon. You keep me alive until we land in Guyana, and I'll underwrite any escape you care to arrange. Done. Welcome to the penal colony of French Guiana. Whose prisoners you are. Get moving! And from which there is no escape. How much would it cost? 3,000 in advance, which you pay to me, and I pay to Pascal, who provides everything. You double-cross me, I'll kill you. How much you charge to send this one as far as Panama? Steve McQueen, Dustin Hoffman, two men with nothing in common but a will to live and a place to die. It's up to you. You're worth just as much dead as you are alive. We make no pretense at rehabilitation here. We're not priests, we're processors. A meat packer processes live animals into edible ones. We process dangerous men into harmless ones. This we accomplish by breaking you. What do you think? Did he make it or didn't he? Oh, I say his chances are very poor, wouldn't you? Is that all you've got to say? What do you expect me to say? That man risked his life to save mine. The ordeals of prison. I want that name and I want it now. Then you'll die. The dangers of escape. Steve McQueen. Dustin Hoffman. Papillon. The greatest adventure of escape ever filmed. Okay, now this one, again, period drama. It's directed by Franklin J. Schaffner. However, the screenplay is by Dalton Trumbo. Perhaps you remember that biopic from a couple years ago for the Academy Awards and everything. Um, so, screenplay is Dalton Trumbo and Lorenzo Semple Jr. And this, of course, again, based on the autobiography of Chedier. However, this one stars Steve McQueen as Papillon and Dustin Hoffman as uh, Louis Dega. Now, um, this one, again, tells the same story. Um, he's a safe cracker, framed for, prison, framed for killing a pimp, lands himself a life sentence at a prison in French Guiana. Now, he is um the the thing with this one is you guys remember when i when we talked about a decade's sensibilities really taking its time to kind of flesh out a story and give you things to look at and watch a character develop and we talked about this back when we were doing death wish so they do this here in 1973's version the problem is, is that this is already a drawn-out story. 
And it is also 17 minutes longer than 2017's Papillon. And you can tell. It's just everything takes its time. And while to a certain degree it's great because uh, because as uh, Tim noted, Steve McQueen's characterization is better than Charlie Hunnam's. The characterization can only do so much if you're sticking this great character in a very slow-moving state. And this is especially uh, demonstrable and conveyed in the solitary scene. It's just... It's just so slow. And the movie just is, in my opinion, poorly paced. I don't think it necessarily was as poorly paced for its day. So I will give it credit where credit's due. That's more of a 1970s sensibility. To really draw that out and really help you kind of see where these characters are coming from. But the story itself takes place over decades. So it's okay for it or at least a decade basically so it's okay for it to be slow where it needs to be you don't have to make it slower than it already is and that is the overriding concern here i just think that um the cinematography while very very good especially considering the fact that this was filmed on location and that was something that was not done very frequently back then so given the constraints, I think the cinematography is decent, but it's not great. And it's something that's much, uh, I think, is better done in 2018 or 2017's Papillon. But it, for me, it's just how, it's just so slow. It is so incredibly slow. And that is what ultimately gives it to me. I think the performances are decent. I think the storytelling um, it is there but i i simply liked the the tightness and the pacing of 2018s over 1973s and despite the fact that the characterization is better for steve uh for steve mcqueen i think dustin hoffman does a great job i don't know that he necessarily is better than uh rami malek uh but uh, you know maybe tim will have more to say about that i just i can't get over how slow it is guys uh, at the end of the day, I think the performance of Steve McQueen is better than the performance of Charlie Hunnam. But that's just, that's by degrees. It's not like night and day. I mean, it's just it's a it's a difference of degrees. I think the performance of Dustin Hoffman is basically the same, maybe even not as good. Again, difference of degrees uh, when it comes to comparing his Degas against Raymond Malek's Degas, but. 1973s is just too slow overall. I would say stick with the stick with the new Papillon and bring us home there, Tim. I rewatched the 73 Papillon a couple days ago and I was surprised. I was under the assumption like with Matt uh was saying that it was just very slow cuz I haven't seen it in years, probably since I was a kid. And I remember thinking, "Damn, this movie is slow." I fucking love The Great Escape, and that's a long movie with Steve McQueen, and that's that movie's not slow, but Papillon is slow. 
what I didn't realize at the time is that it's a character movie all about the character of Papillon and how he changes as a man and all the sacrifices he has to make and the payoffs that came with it. And watching all of that now or experiencing that now, I don't consider it slow. I also consider it a product of the decade of the 70s where you have to have these comedic moments you know, you, you have to have these random characters that show up. Granted, I'm not at all familiar with the actual story of Papillon. I haven't read the book or anything. But in the 74 version, they have to wrangle an alligator. They also come in contact with a leper colony. Like, the series of events that you see in the remake happen differently. Or more events happen in the original film. Now, I don't know if that is based actually on Papillon's book or if they were fabricated or, or what, but I was under the impression that for the remake, they took all the bits and pieces from the autobiography that they knew, that they knew were true and belonged to Papillon and made that their film. And they made the film more of Papillon and Dega's soul journey. Soul, S-O-U-L, I should point out. So there are definitely significant differences, I think, with tone at times, style throughout, and what the director, what the filmmakers the state of mind they wanted their audience to be in when viewing this film. When you watch the 74 version, they are, or 73 version, you definitely get to see the town they go into when they're going to that penal colony. You see the town, you see people working, you see kids, you see women, you see all this other stuff as they're going to their outpost or whatever you call it. However, in the newer film, you don't see any of that. You think they're just in the middle of the jungle, surrounded by no towns, no villages, no no nothing. And so when they talk about going into the, the jungle, you just think they're going to go into the jungle and there's nothing there. They go to the beach, they go to the ocean, and there's nothing there. So you don't really get that there are people living their lives. There are village folk. So whenever you see the guy with the prostitutes, you kind of wonder, like, where do they live? Why the hell are they there? They just kind of popped up. Just didn't make a whole lot of sense why they had to be there. So that's one thing that the newer movie I thought failed was just the sense of space and a better sense of setting. I think also what the 73 movie really gets correct is the aging process of both characters. Louis Dega, Dustin Hoffman, he is the better out of it version of the character there in the final act. Hoffman just nails it out of the park. But Remick, he is consistent from the beginning to end. It's just a little bit more of a caricature with his hair going crazy just to show that he's crazy. But, you know, that I think that's just adding to the type of movie the, the remake is. It's neither a stellar decision nor a poor decision. But I did appreciate seeing the disgusting teeth in the original film. You really don't see a lot of disgusting teeth in the newer flick, which takes you out of the setting in a way. But I think the last thing that I noticed between the two films that I wanted to point out 
was at the end of both films, Papillon, he comes to a realization when he throws a coconut off the cliff and he notices the tide taking that coconut out to sea. And the connection that Poppy makes with that coconut and that current, and then his escape off Devil's Island, is never made cinematically clear in either version. It just kind of happens and he quickly comes to that conclusion. However, it was better done in the 1973 Papillon. I'm going to deem 2018's Papillon as the winner of Copycat Throwdown because I think if you go into this movie not knowing anything, you're going to get a kick out of it. You're going to be inspired, even. I, I, I don't know. It's just a really good movie, and I think that says a lot. And to me, that trumps anything, because from beginning to end... The remake does the source material complete justice. You know, the hearts are in the right place all across the board, and it shows. So, Papillon 2018 is my pick. Okay, well then, that brings us to the end of our hybrid uh, copycat throwdown movies section. Next week again, we will have we will be half-assed. <laughs> <laughs> with just me johnny's jumping in uh we're gonna have our uh special episode that's a bonus segment only of uh, discussions uh that is going to be johnny and i talking about our last batman standing and we should be on the dark knight if i remember correctly might be on Dark Knight Rises. Should be Dark Knight, though. Uh, so, yeah. So, tune in next week for that. And I guess, um, Tim, we're going to miss you. And do, you know, I, I know you're not, like, going, going. We're still going to have all your stuff. But it is going to be weird this month. You'll do fine. I'm I'm looking forward to listening to them. <laughs> and watch, he comes back in two weeks. What the fuck did he do? Oh my god, I can't leave this place for a fucking day. <sighs> and, uh, you know, without it all going to shit. All right, well then I guess, without further ado, it is time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on. This is a piece of the dark crystal. Then that's what my master meant. Yes. I have to put it... You have it. to heal the... The dark crystal. Prophecy! Jen! Stay! 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 No! Stay! Stay, M friend! Stay, M friend! Prophecy! Prophecy caused all this trouble! That prophecy? Yes! That's why Skeksis killed Gelfling? Yes! Yes! Bad mistake! Skeksis afraid! Fear Gelfling! But you're Skeksis! But I am friend. Save you from Gotham. Why? Don't listen to him. It's a trick. No, please. Must listen. I'm outcast. If I make peace, I'm outcast no more. Will you stop the Gotham attacks? Yes, please. Come to the castle. Please. Show them you want peace. Show them Gelfling will not harm us. Please. 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 All 
ride while the music you've been listening to as always has been brought to us by our music partners Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are of course the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt on Twitter at NitTwit12345. And of course come aboard the information super highway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. And of course you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud. If you'd like to support the show, please feel free to check us out over at Patreon. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Charlie Hunnam, I get to say this. I'm pretty mercurial and a very difficult, long-winded decision maker at the best of times. Take care, cinephiles, and uh, I won't be talking to you again next week, but Matt will. Technically, you'll be talking to us. Well, kinda. Yeah, I'll be talking at you. Perhaps we should be going. Oh, there we are, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>